Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role that joy plays in our own journey. Welcome to episode 75. This is Paula Jenkins, the host of Jumpstart Your Joy. This week, I'm excited to welcome Alexis Duncan, who joins me to talk about the role of love as the foundation for the religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. She holds a PhD from my alma mater, UC Santa Barbara, where I also studied religion, and we have a great time really digging into the basis of these three religions and looking at love. It's a great way to round out Foundations Month. Before we get to that, I want to give you guys all the biggest, warmest welcome and say thank you so much for listening to Jumpstart Your Joy. If you want to find the show notes for this episode and find out more about the show, you can go to the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 75. And you'll find out more about the show and about Alexis and all sorts of links and good information can be found there too. If you like what you hear and you want to subscribe, Jumpstart Your Joy is on all the major podcasting syndication spots like iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, and Player FM. All you need to do is search for Jumpstart Your Joy and it'll pop up in the options. You can hit subscribe and you'll get each weekly episode delivered right to your mobile device and you can listen in every Tuesday morning when there's a brand new episode ready for you. And when you hit that subscribe button, please, please leave a review and a five-star rating. Um, I love seeing all of your comments and it really does help other people find the show. If you are curious about starting your own show, I invite you to come on over when you're visiting jumpstartyourjoy.com and join my free podcasting fundamentals course, which will give you a great idea of the basics you'll need to create your own podcast. It will also get you on the VIP list to learn more about when I open the next class, which is a boot camp that gets you from idea to full-blown show in about eight weeks, and that'll be running in the middle of this year, so mid 2017. If you already know that you want to start a show, I would love to give you my affiliate code with Liberated Syndication, which is my gorgeous host for this show, um, also known as Libsyn. You can go over to their website. If you already know you're going to sign up for hosting at Libsyn.com, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. And when you're getting ready to check out, you'll get at least one free month of hosting. If you go early in the month, you'll get two free months basically of hosting by using the super duper code joy j-o-y when you go to check out so that's over at liberated syndication i can't say enough good things about them they really are wonderful have great support and i love having my show hosted by them so on to the show this week alexis duncan and i met a few months ago and we even recorded a previous interview that very sadly got eaten up by a software error. <laughs> I was really bummed because I, I honestly lost, I think, five or six shows to that error. Anyway, I was super excited that she reached out again recently, especially because the work that she's doing around religions is so important and so relevant. Our conversation is all about the basis of 
the big three religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, we talk about how all three of these religions have their roots in what Christianity calls the Old Testament, and how love is at the center of all three, and that all three of them have these really deep and meaningful messages. When you look at the context of what society was like when these religions sacred texts were being created and being written down, this kind of that context of the time in which these sacred texts came about all offer guidance for a people living in that time. And it offers clues and hints to what are overarching themes of compassion, inclusivity, community, and acceptance. And I think it's so important to dive into that now, especially when there is so much concern in in the world about what does Islam stand for and and how do we welcome and include people into the U.S. Um, I think it's so important to really get at what the heart of these religions are about so that we can better understand the context for what Islam and Judaism believe and how that plays out in our larger society. So if you're curious about how these three religions are similar or you want to learn more about them, this is an episode that you're really going to want to listen to. And so here's the interview with Alexis. Welcome to the podcast. Today, I have my friend, Alexis Duncan, to talk about religion and interfaith discussions. And I'm so glad you're here, Alexis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Would you kick it off by telling us about what you loved to do as a child and what were your earliest sparks of joy? I loved to imagine and really dive into the world. (laughs) I tended to create art and create stories from a really young age and did that in a variety of different ways from making pasta art on of my meal as a toddler to (laughs) making vast worlds in my room (laughs) with pretty much anything I could including rocks and blocks and all manner of things. I think my joy came from the creative, but also merging that with the natural, with the wonders of of the world outside. I love how you just put that, that it was a merging of the creative and the natural. That seems full of wonder for both a child and anybody, like seeing both things and, and seeing the endless possibilities probably of both. Yes. And do you want to share what it is that you do now? Well, I'm a life coach and intuitive, and I I help, I would say, spiritual creatives build lives based in unconditional love. And I do that through a variety of different ways, including classes and books and coaching, (laughs) different just different ways to kind of help people base their daily lives, their intentional living in love. Mm, I love that. (laughs) 
And I guess I should mention to everybody that Alexis and I actually had a previous conversation that was totally eaten by uh, software that will not be mentioned. And so this is our second go. And I'm so excited to have this discussion because we both, Alexis and I, have a background in religious studies. And so while I don't necessarily talk about it that much on the show, that is truly like a first love is the study of religion. and. So after the incident, or just kind of the, what do we even want to call it? Like the nature of the world has shifted. So our common, I don't know, perceptions seem to have shifted very quickly on us. So that there is a lot of talk about religion and religious groups, and especially in the U.S. if you're, you're listening from elsewhere. But, and so I was really honored that Alexis reached back out and said, no, now, we got to talk about this now. So... <laughs> <laughs> So let's jump in. I mean, I don't know the best place to start other than you've done a lot of work around kind of interfaith dialogue and created an interfaith devotional. What is your take on what is happening or what have you seen come up in the world? And and I'll also say, and how can we how can we either work with it or I don't know, work through it? Well, one of the problems that we have as a species, as people, mm-hmm. is that we are often frightened by things that are different. Mm-hmm. And when something or someone is seen as different, it's easy to strip away their humanity and turn them into an object, turn them into a monster. And when someone ceases to be a person and turns into a monster, then we can do whatever we want with them. We can treat them however we would treat a monster. And you can (laughs) imagine all of the things that you might do to a monster. Mm -hmm. And that is the antithesis of love. (laughs) It is the exact opposite of what we are called to be and do as human beings. If we're to realize our humanity, we need to see the humanity in other people and treat them as we would treat ourselves, the golden rule, right? Love others as you would love other people. You know, do not treat others as you would not treat yourself. It's all the same concept, and there's a reason why that's there. And it's actually in all of the major world religions. That rule is in all of them. Mm -hmm. We have to, as people, create situations and places and spaces where we can remove the monster and embrace the human. So how do we do that? (laughs) Well, we need to do that by just starting out and extending our hands as friends and curious neighbors. (laughs) I mean, it's not that complicated, but when you're blinded by fear, it really makes it hard. And so we have to learn how to let go of the fear and see other people as people. And then once other people are people, it becomes really hard to say, 
oh, no, you can't come into our country or, oh, no, we can torture you. And, and no, 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 no. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do those things anymore because suddenly that person is just like you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll stay or steer clear as far as we can from the political side of it. But it seems like, I don't know, it does seem, what, it seems like stereotypes are kind of running the show here. And like you mentioned, I love that you said that, you know, the major texts all teach very similar things. And it's very interesting, you know, having any study of, of religion as a background to see how, I want to say it's actually the media maybe likes to go after the more dogmatic and more out there type interpretations of the texts. Yeah. Because really, if we get at the heart of it, I mean, yes, there's a lot of rules in the Christian religion. The Old Testament is heavy on law, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> but then the real message or the, the message shifts drastically, at least for the Christian religion, into one of love. Because, I mean, I mean, we could get into the faith statements around that. But it, in my own opinion, it seems that God saw, okay, these laws aren't working for these people. So I'm going to send someone to show them what I mean. And I'm doing that out of love. This person's not coming for rules. This person is coming to show love. And that's it. <laughs> that's the only way I know how to do this. And I'm sending them in. So, <laughs> you know, is there an equivalent or how do you see that working? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are equivalents, but can you share how you see that working both in Judaism and in Islam? Ooh, and we should probably back up right here and explain something that's very important that I'm making an assumption that people understand, which is that these three religions actually share the same starting point, the same basis. They share the Old Testament. And, and it's really then geography. in the same geography, right? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you want to share that and then talk about maybe the evolution of love in those other two texts, because that feels like a really juicy topic for us here. <laughs> um, I'm, well, first, I'm going to preface this with I am very much a student. <laughs> mm, yes. And I should say, that if someone wanted to learn more in depth about any faith, they need to go to someone who is a scholar or, you know, a rabbi or an imam or a pundit, whatever faith you're curious about. It's really important to talk with someone who knows a lot about this because these people devote their lives to it. So I'm going to give you the layman's <laughs> experience of it yeah. from someone who is outside of those faiths. So take it like that. <laughs> thank you for that preface. I think that's so important. Yes, thank you. <laughs> because I would never claim that I'm an expert in these things. I'm absolutely not. I can only tell you what I've experienced and what I've seen. And so what that is, is that Judaism is... <sighs> An amazing struggle in history. It's a conversation about ethics and what is right. And there's a lot that's not just in, I mean, for those who are listening who are familiar with Christian texts, it's not just the Hebrew scriptures that are included in the Christian tradition, but it's also, you know, the wide range of texts that have come down through rabbinical teaching. And conversations. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, this is a big thing. This is why if you go to a group of people who are studying the Torah, <laughs> you're going into an argument. <laughs> right. You're going into a conversation about what is the most ethical thing. And there's always at least four different answers because there's context involved mm-hmm. and there's logic used. And so this is a really powerful instrument that Judaism uses to figure out what is the ethical thing to do. And the law is a starting point for that. The law yes. of God is a starting point. And those laws are based fundamentally, I think my rabbi friends would say, the law is based in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's what that's the original covenant is, is yeah. between God and God's people. And it is a covenant of love. And that's, but then how do we as humans operate on this planet and treat each other well? In my understanding, that is where then the laws and the Torah starts to come into play. Because we weren't playing yeah. so nice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the hard part. That's the struggle. I mean, that's, and that's a struggle in all faith. You know, the True. question yeah. is, these are ancient texts. These are ancient texts that a prophet or set of prophets laid down as they received or were inspired. However, they were received, the revelation was received at a certain time. And mm-hmm. so at that time, they may have been revolutionary. And many principles within those texts are still revolutionary because they haven't been adopted broadly. But there are also things within those texts that are contextual for the time in which they were received. And so they need to be re-understood, reimagined, and reapplied to the things that are going on now. And some of those things just weren't there back then. I mean, Mm -hmm. transgender, (laughs) what do we do with that? I mean, that's not in there (laughs) for most of these things. It's just not in there. And that doesn't mean that it wasn't an issue. It just wasn't being addressed because there were other issues like infanticide (laughs) that were being addressed. You know, the Internet? No. (laughs) <laughs> that was impossible to imagine at those times. So what do we do? I mean, how are we ethical in the industry? I don't know. You know, capitalism, industrialization, these are huge things to try and deal with yeah. using ancient scripture that was written thousands of years ago in some cases. <laughs> I mean, it's... uh You know, that's why we have teachers and scholars and clergy is, you know, that's why we have the institutional faith and this this conversation. And it is a conversation about how to reimagine how do we apply love in the world that we are in today? How do we apply this in love the way we are today? And that's, you know, I'm just going to kind of dip into Christianity now, because I think that's a good place to do it. Um, yes, totally agree. Yes. <laughs> you know, with, with Christianity, there's a passage, well, I should say there's a story that is included in several Gospels that is central 
to Jesus, his message and his mission, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And the most popular and most controversial, probably, section of that is the Beatitude, right? Which is, and most people in the U.S. at least who listen to this are probably familiar with blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are, that's the Beatitudes. And it's also the part that people in the U.S. are probably the most uncomfortable with because it fundamentally aligns God with the oppressed. There's no way to get around it. I mean, you have to do mental gymnastics to try and justify that this is somehow, oh, this is about, you know, some person in like a 500 square foot mansion, blah, blah, blah. No, <laughs> we, we have to be honest about this. I mean, we have to be open about this conversation. And how do we apply love? Well, that means that we have to, we have to apply the golden rule in a practical way. And this is a way that we do it. We go and we provide food for the hungry. We go and we provide shelter for the homeless. We go and we, you know, we stand with those people who are being pushed out and we bring them in and we hold them close because that's where they deserve to be. And that is a fight right now in Christianity. That is a fight. Right. And that's sad. It's a sadness. It's such a sadness for me to even say that, but it is a fight. Yeah. And, well, and um, I'm sorry. Something. Oh yeah. No, that's okay. Something I find so interesting because you mentioned that those, that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, well, I think just the Beatitudes only show up once in their specific text, but is that right? I think they're in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. Okay. But the, the message itself, whether it's the Beatitudes, but Jesus keeps repeating this again and again and again. Like, this is the heart of his gospel, is like you're saying, is bringing those who are oppressed or those who are considered, I'll use air quotes around, the other. Like, they are brought to the center, and they are welcomed in. And even if they're different, whatever that means to any group of people, that those are the ones to bring in, like you were saying so beautifully, that we need to hold them close. And so, yeah, I find it upsetting as, as well, but like I, I imagine where you're headed is that anyone would take this text and then make it something else, or anyone would try and take these texts of love and try and say that they're meant to show how we can exclude anyone. Like, that's mind boggling to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So if we're supposed to treat someone like we treat ourselves, that means, yeah, like, where else can we go with this? Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. I just want to jump in and be like, no, this is the heart of the teaching. I don't know if you have any favorite books around that. If somebody's like, even from an educational standpoint, I loved Cynthia Borgio, um, wrote The Wisdom Jesus. Like, that one book blew my mind. Mm. But <laughs> she's good on this one. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I don't have anything that's like popping right up in my mind right now, as far as text. I mean, I love, I mean, there was a long, I should say, this is a good time for me to say that my, one of the family businesses for my family is ministry. (laughs) So, So I have two ordained parents. And then, you know, like an uncle who's ordained. And Mm -hmm. so 
for a long time, I was interested primarily in Christianity and, you know, thinking about ways in which to really bring back the central teachings and, like, put it out there. And as I've kind of matured and explored the world a little bit more, I'm, my interests have broadened and my knowledge about things have, have broadened. And that's when I kind of saw that it wasn't just Christianity that was like needing to come back or needing that, that message of love or having that message of love. It was other faith too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I went through a, I have a, a collection of religious texts <laughs> from different faiths that just like, it's a large, maybe a couple shelves of, <laughs> that are just religious texts and commentaries <laughs> and things, which is nothing compared to my dad's shelves, but <laughs> which take up a wall. But that's all to say that there's a lot of different things that I could I could talk about as far as like text. But the first thing that I think when with Christianity is I really love C. S. Lewis. I love yeah. C.S. Lewis, and I love Madeline Lingle. And I'm not talking about their fiction, although I really enjoyed their fiction as, as a child. I'm talking about their discussions on faith and art. They're just beautiful writers, I mean, beautiful writers that talk about faith and art, and in particular Christianity, but you can find pieces within them that would apply to any spiritual path. And the name for the Madeline Langle book is just, I can't think of it right off the top of my head, but the C.S. Lewis book was near Christianity. Awesome. And I'll link up to both, both of those. Yeah. I'll grab the title for the Madeline Langle one for me later. Yeah. I'll link up to those. Thank you. But yeah, so we were talking about the central theme I don't really like the word theme for it, but the central teaching maybe of Christianity being love. And yeah. how does that apply over, should we jump into Islam now and maybe give yeah. a little lay of the land? Cause I feel like of, of the, and I'll call them big three, cause at least in my religious studies background, that wasn't an uncommon term for the you know Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So maybe let's give a little groundwork even, because I feel like that one is, when we talk about Islam, that one feels like it's the one that's least understood, especially amongst what the Western Hemisphere, even like <laughs> at least North America. Like we just don't get it. Well, yeah. I mean, so what is some of the vocab around it? When somebody says, "Let's talk about like Islam and Islam and Muslim," like what are those two words? I mean, I know, but let's just define that for people so we so they have the lay well, of the land. I mean, a Muslim is a person that has chosen. Because it's a choice. I mean, you can be born into it, but it's also like you have to declare that you're following the teachings of the Quran and God's law. I mean, God's, you know, God's intended lessons and principles in the world. I mean, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that I actually think that Islam and Judaism are like really close brothers. <laughs> um, in fact, I think they're closer to one another than they are to Christianity because both of them have, it's a total life thing. You, know, you have 
a way of moving through the world that is very specific. And you have, you know, like you have some things that you eat, some things that you don't. You have times and places where you pray. You pray at certain times. It brings a sacredness to every part of life that Christianity doesn't have in its current incarnation. And so there's, I really value that, actually, the, the commitment that my Muslim friends have to their faith and how they really live their faith in a very tangible, clear way. And their commitment is visible in how they live their faith. And one of the things that, you know, it gets glossed over because people, I mean, you have to think, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm not, you know, you want to learn more about this. You really need to talk to somebody who's an Islamic scholar. But from my experience with learning from Islamic scholars and, um, <laughs> and from reading texts and speaking with my Muslim friends and studying this, what I can say is that, you know, the Quran was a revelation, I mean, that's central to the faith, is that the Quranic text is a revelation from God received by the Prophet Muhammad and then written down and spread throughout the Arabic world. That was the thing. And many of the things in the Quran are reflections of the culture at the time, the situation that was going on at the time. And so the reason why I say you talk to an Islamic scholar or an imam is that their job is to help reinterpret how the principles that guided those choices in the Quran would affect the Islamic community today. And some of them don't, you know, I mean, some of the things in the Quran, they apply to situations that don't exist today. They applied to the Arabic world at that time. But the guiding principles can be taken out of those and applied to the present. I mean, and, you know, like every, and, and this goes for any faith, every religious text, all of that stuff, you have to understand that it comes with a cultural lens. It comes with a history. It comes with a language. It comes with all of those things that shape and create a certain context. And so in order to understand the text, we have to understand what's going on around that. We have to understand how the language is different. We have to understand, you know, the problems that those people were facing at that time. You know, and then we have to say, okay, in that context, what message was received by those people when they read this, when they heard this? Because the message that we hear with our context, which is radically different, is going to be really different than what those people would have heard and experienced then. And that's the biggest problem, is that cross-temporal, <laughs> cross-cultural misunderstanding and misreading of these ancient scriptures. I mean, it, it happens in all of the faiths. And so, you know, Islam is 
just like Judaism, just like Christianity, at the center of it is a drive toward love. You know, there's a drive to be standing with the oppressed, to taking care of one another, and to be the best Muslim. It's not just about showing your commitment to the precepts of Islam, but also to live God's love in your life. You know, that's a, that's a part of, a central part of the faith. And so when we look at extremist groups, well, we can't say that they're practicing Islam, because they're not. Just like we can't say that extremists of anybody is practicing their faith, because they're not. They're taking the rules, not the principles, but the rules, and twisting them to under and motivated by fear and anger. And those are terrible things to use as motivation. And they're the antithesis of the divine. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how, how much, you know, if you don't think about these things in, you know, in, in a little bit more detail and, and a little bit about how, okay, yeah, you know, if I was getting a divine, in, divinely inspired text right now, it's going to look different. <laughs> right. you know? So different than even so probably different. like last year at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to understand that if we were, I mean, contextually, if we were literally living in a very arid desert-like place with, I mean, in the wilderness, and that's kind of, I feel like wilderness is a key theme throughout so many of these texts where nothing is, it's a survivalist mode. It's not, there's nothing provided. And so, like you're saying, then establishing these rules to keep a people safe I mean, it does get severe because the landscape is severe and the the things they're facing could be severe. And so some of it sounds harsh and, and strange to us now, but it's like you're saying, when, when the principles are that we're, you know, we're serving God and that means doing certain things to protect each other and love each other, it seems different to us now, but it's it's contextual. And then very interesting that well, people will pull out and as a scholar may say, proof text things to, to try and say that what, they, what they're claiming for this extremist group is true and valid when, in fact, it's taking the things out of context and just appropriating it for their own often not-so-pure <laughs> intentions. I, you know, I'm not trying to like, really bully anyone, of course, here, but like, it just seems that lots of times things are taken so far out of context only to be used to further a cause that doesn't have anything but, like you're saying, fear and hate and anger at the core of it. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, I don't love it, but it's interesting that then this ties back to what you were saying is then once, if we're in a space or a pattern that's filled of fear, then, then this whole thing starts to cycle through where it's that we are quick to look for whoever is the other. And then, like you said <laughs> early on, that we, then it's, do we make a monster of them? And then that makes it so that we could collectively push them, sadly, further out, like whoever that other is. Yeah. Very, very profound and upsetting, as you also said. How do you see, like, what's, what's the answer? I mean, I, I think in my heart, I probably know what the answer is, but 
how do we solve or cure or at least start to chip away at this cultural kind of bias or misunderstanding? Well, I actually spent my academic time more or less studying that. (laughs) And the conclusion that I came to was that we need more exposure. We need more education. We need to go out and learn about this stuff. And then we need to make friends. No, and we need to, we need to say, okay, this fear is here about this difference or whatever it is, because it may not have to do with this difference. It's just the difference provides a space where we can, we can create a scapegoat, which is not the same as being afraid of the difference, but, you know, creating those friendships, creating spaces for education and for exposure and honestly, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but I think mothers <laughs> have a real place in this. Well, and I should say parents. I shouldn't just say mothers, because parents. Parents who are socializing their kids. We have a place in this to an opportunity to create empathetic, educated, compassionate human beings. And so we can start young, right? But that's a long-term goal, right? It's not going to do as much good with the current generations and, and older generations that are adults. Right. So with that, we have to be really conscious. And those of us who are, you know, compassionate and educated in these things and comfortable with people who are not the same as us, we need to, you know, push for workshops in different community organizations. We need to push for times that are safe for us to get together. And the best places for that, I think, are community organizations like rec centers and stuff like that, but then also religious communities, you know, places that are not necessarily I think it works better when it's not at a business because I think businesses, you know, people just go because it's their job. (laughs) They're not necessarily interested, but the people who go, you know, the first step is community organizations and religious organizations and, and creating those spaces for interfaith dialogue and friendship and and education and understanding. And then that leading to, you know, what are the next steps? And, and we wrestle with that together as an interfaith community. How do we live out of love now in our community, which is so cosmopolitan and so diverse? Yeah. And as you're saying that, it strikes me so strongly. So for listeners, Alexis and I both, although we didn't know each other at the time, we both went to UC Santa Barbara and studied religion there. So big shout out. (laughs) If you're looking for a good religious studies program, I think it was top notch. But there was a course there that was called Voices of a Stranger, and it was taught by Walter Capps. He later went on to be a senator and then passed away in Washington, D.C. at the airport. And Barbara is his wife, right? And is now Lois. I don't know where Barbara came from. And I think Lois. It was Cong- they were Congress people, I think. Okay. So <laughs> I'll restate that. Walter Capps was a congressman. And then uh, Lois is now the congressman for the Santa Barbara area. But this class was beautiful because it really, what he was doing was inviting voices 
from other places, other people that we had never experienced. And I feel like that legacy is part of what you were also suggesting. And I love that it, that, I mean, you know, this is your own work. I'm not meaning to diminish that in any way, but like that this, there's this beautiful thing that happens when you do start to invite other people into a conversation instead of letting them remain as a stranger. Yeah. And so I don't, I mean, I don't know if you have ideas, if there's not those community pieces existing in your area, I mean, it feels like it's also on each of us to start to look for places where we can start a dialogue or we can start reading a book or we can start educating ourselves because the, it, some of it sits with each of us if we're afraid. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah. then it's really, it, it's also not just sitting with ourselves and, and reading sources, but being careful about those sources. <laughs> Oh, yes. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes. Because, because there's a lot of information now that's coming at us from all different kinds of places, and there's a lot of different agendas involved in that. And so it's important to, you know, who is the person who has written this book? Who is the person who is publishing this blog or whatever, you know, those kinds of things are really important if you're looking to educate yourself because you want to make sure that you're getting the right information. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what you just said about, you know, reading a book is a great idea. I mean, having a book club, having a small get together where you do like potlucks or something. I mean, just in your home, because it doesn't have to be like a big fancy thing. It can just be like five friends who get together and talk about the content of this book. And then if you want to invite someone who is an expert, you can bet that right now they are more than happy to come and talk with you. They're more than happy to answer questions. Like I think that extending your hand and getting out of our comfort zone a little bit to, to find out this stuff. I mean, People will be grateful to have these conversations. So if you're curious and if you don't know, you know, where to go, like there's, I mean, start at, you know, start at the university or the college that's nearby. Go to, if there's a mosque or a synagogue, you know, you can go and be like, hey, I really want to learn about you. (laughs) And people love to talk about themselves. (laughs) People love to talk about this stuff. So it's great. I mean, it'll be fun, you know? I mean, sponsor like an Eid dinner. That is so fun. And you get to try all different kinds of food from all different places because we're not just talking about like Saudi Arabia here. We're talking about a huge group of people coming from all over the world. And who are Muslim. <laughs> so you get to have lots of really delicious food. We did that at, at my college in central Pennsylvania, of all places. The cultural clubs there were really strong. They had a lot of clout. And so we would have an Eid celebration every year. And it was so fun. So, you know, something like that. I mean, if you want, you know, if you want to have like, I mean, I don't know if if the Jewish community would be open to doing this because it is a sacred thing. But to have a seder, I mean, to like 
to show people and have them experience this contemplative, very thoughtful and spiritual experience over food. I mean, most people can, like, get with that, you know? Like, <laughs> there's food involved? Yes. I'm so there. Well, and it's so, it's so interesting that each of these three religions that we've talked about, too, like, food and celebration is as central as, you know, anything else. Like, it's really, like, I think there's something beautiful about each of them that they there are very sacred and special things that happen over a meal and over the communion, as it may be called, that like the community and the communion are really hand in hand and, and a part of, of the sharing. And so it's interesting too, that like then when we fall into the fear that that isolates. And so when the religions themselves are kind of advocating for us to be together and, and share and, and share experiences. Like, I think that I love that you've brought up the meal because I think that is so, so special and important in each of them as it well. Is. I mean, it's so, and there's so many opportunities. I mean, like, we've talked a lot about the people of the book, which is those three religions, but it's, but it's also present in other faiths, too. I mean, you know, this is, once you start to understand the differences and similarities in one group, then it starts to be clear that, hey, this might be a thing somewhere else, too. So, you know, you can start to look at, like, Sikhism and the Longer Hall, which right now is actually like kind of a big deal with the Oroville Dam. Mm -hmm. um, the Sikh community was like <laughs> being a real witness to people and just providing safe space to eat. And and by the way, if there's a if there's a Sikh temple near you, you should really go and get a meal. They have a place where anyone can go and eat. And you can just eat really great Punjabi food. And it's so great. People are so nice. I mean, you know, but when we, we, we start to think like, oh, gosh, you know, these people, they're, they're different. They don't believe in the same stuff. Well, if you don't know, if you haven't spent any time exploring it, maybe they do actually believe in some of the same stuff. The principles are the same. I mean, we talked a lot about that, like... Food, I mean, practical things like food are central to the experience. Celebrations are central to the experience. Scripture is central to the experience. Prayer, love, you know, family, connection and community, all of these things are such big deals. And it's not just one faith. It's all of them, which tells me one thing. That's humanity. That's what it, it is to be human, is to have these pieces in play. So you can always count on the human being present. And, Ooh, I and, love it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, if that, if you take nothing else from this conversation, from this, this podcast thing, I mean, the human will be present. And that is the universal. And so all the other stuff, you get confused about it, it's no big deal. Because in the end, you still have the human. Mm -hmm. And we can all get behind that. Because that's yeah. us. That's me. That's you. It's us. Yeah. Mm, I love it, Alexis. <laughs> ah, 
Well, would you, I mean, I hate to cut this off because yes, <laughs> I think the two of us can go on for days and, and we could. <laughs> totally divided by this. So we may have to have a part two at some point because I, I love talking about this stuff. And yes, I think we are of such a similar like ilk on many of the thoughts. So are you, I know you're offering a new class that also would help dive into this. Do you want to share a little bit more about that before we get into the last two questions? Yes. Well, I have, I mean, I have a world religions curriculum, which is called Six Degrees of Separation, a curriculum on world religion. And you can actually buy the curriculum if you want to teach it. It has all of the stuff in it that you can do. I am going to start teaching that class in Santa Barbara County. So if you happen to be in Santa Barbara during the Lenten season, you could drop by. But if you're not, I am willing to do, we could do Skype classes if that's something that people are interested in. Or of course, I can always come and, and lead a workshop on this kind of thing, which I, which I do I do have a workshop that I offer as part of that. And then also, I should say, this is something that you can do really easily. There's the Interfaith Devotional, which is uh, Six Degrees of Separation, 42 Days Through Faith. And that's something that it's six weeks. It includes a theme for each week and scripture from, I would say, the, the big six which are Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And so you get scriptures from those six faiths, you get a theme for the day, a contemplation, a question to respond. And then you can even do small group sessions. And I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about it. It's a very, it's a great way to deepen your own spiritual journey no matter where you are in that journey, because it, it helps you to kind of connect with the divine, no matter what your faith tradition or not faith tradition, um, while getting a little peek into the universality of faith traditions. So those are a few different ways that if you're curious about what I offer and what I do with interfaith stuff, that those are some great ways to connect with, with it in me. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I will link up to all of that in the show notes. But thank you. So let's jump to our last couple questions. You obviously, like many of us, have so many different interests and things that you juggle every day. How do you define balance and what does harmony look like for you? Yeah. And you can stick with the harmony side if that feels more like what balance looks like. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a bullet journal. And I, this is a practice that I started this year. So I have my monthly habit tracker and, and then I also have daily things that I write down. So I have like tasks that I need to do. And then I also include one thing that makes me feel loved or loving, one thing that gave me joy and one thing that makes me feel abundant. So every day I spend a little time thinking about what that one thing is and that's how I end my day. And that has really highlighted the wonderful things in my life and helped me to bring more wonderful things into my life. And so I've gotten to a place where I really 
I pay attention to. Like, have I done everything in my bullet journals I wanted to do? No, yes, maybe. <laughs> and then, like, okay, like, I'll go back and try get something done if I can. And if not, then no big deal and move it to the next day. And then I also, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, wow, you know, what was the thing that made me feel loved the most? I mean, <laughs> it's nice when you have a problem figuring out what that is <laughs> because you have so many. So yeah. um, that has definitely helped me to find balance with myself and be more fully present in what I'm doing from moment to moment. I love that practice of writing down those things. That sounds like it would just be really kind of a lovely way to end a day and feel like closure, but also, I don't know, like a deep contentedness over the day. And I, I wonder if you may have already just provided this answer, but I'll get into the last question. Um, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? To jumpstart joy in my life, the world, and other people's lives. This is something that I think is central to just living. And it can be kind of an answer for all three. Mm. And that is to approach life with the highest good in mind. What will bring about the highest good for all involved? And that will, when you take a breath and kind of think about that and just and let it let it sit with you as like the intention for your day. I want to bring about the highest good for all involved. You're going to get more joy. You're going to get more love. You're going to get more abundance. You're going to get more wealth and wellness. You're going to get all of the good stuff because you're thinking about what's good for everyone. And I'm not just saying like, other people, you know, that includes you too. Like it's, it's a whole package. So what is the highest good for everyone involved? And it's awesome. I mean, when I'm really intentional and I, and I do that really great stuff happens. So I really recommend that as just that being like an underlying intention because it always ends up with good stuff. I love that one so much. Just writing it down. Yeah, that one. I love that setting the intention because that is probably what I would feel like one of the easiest and one of the hardest things to follow through with all the time. It's just to have one goal like that in mind. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you screw up and it's okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, you have to forgive yourself. Ooh. I mean, that's, that's another like, okay, what's the highest good? The highest good is forgiving yourself. <laughs> no. And others, I mean, yeah. yeah, so, but it's all right, you know, you acknowledge it, take your lessons from it, you move on to the next thing, and and that's okay, like, you don't have to be 100% all the time, I don't think anyone is. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And if there is a person who is, I want to meet them, <laughs> like, really. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Alexis, thank you so much for being on the show today. Just, I just love that we got to talk about all of this, and I love your take on it. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. 
Alexis, thank you so much for joining me this week. To get all of the links or find out more about her, you can find the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 75. You get the links to her site. Um, and she's offering a live and in-person class in the Santa Barbara area. If you are from that area, there will be a link over to her site of how you can attend that class in person about the world's religions. And you can also find her if you are not in the Santa Barbara area. You can find her on Instagram at alexis.duncan. And please let her know that you found her here on Jumpstart Your Joy. For next week, as we move into March, the new theme, because there's a new theme each month this year, and the new theme is courage. I am thrilled to be kicking off this month with my friend Iman Gaddy, who is a grief and trauma coach. And she is seriously one of the most courageous women I have ever met. Aman was orphaned at age six and is now living the life she dreamed about as a little girl. She speaks in front of crowds and she helps others with their own grief and trauma and, and helps them learn to thrive after having had very difficult life situations. She's, the, she's just this amazing embodiment of joy and, and she and I laugh so hard. <laughs> this interview she seriously tells one of the most hilarious stories that has ever been on the podcast and i just admire her for really bravely facing down and living through so many of the things in her own life i hope that you will join me for episode 76 and for a full month of courage so i will see you guys all next week and until then i hope that your days are filled with so much joy